It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. After the podcast, check out our other episodes, all our Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more at ChristianQuestions.com. Today's topic is, does the Bible tell us how the world will end? Coming up in this episode... There are many Bible prophecies that point to events that seem to signal a chaotic end to the world. How about those Bible verses that talk about mountains falling into the sea and the earth melting? What if it was revealed that we are living right now in the time of this prophecy unfolding? Now, here's Rick, Jonathan, and Julie. Welcome everyone, I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host, for over 20 years. Thankful for the privilege. And Julie, a longtime CQ contributor, is also with us. Great topic, gentlemen. Jonathan, what's our theme scripture for today's episode? Psalm 46, 1 and 2. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. Talking about the end of the world is scary. The amazing thing is that predicting the end of the world has been going on for thousands of years. Quoting a few lines from a 2009 Smithsonian Magazine article, quote, an Assyrian clay tablet dating around 2800 BC bears the inscription, our earth is degenerate in these later days. There are signs that the world is speedily coming to an end. Bribery and corruption are common. Children no longer obey their parents. Every man wants to write a book and the end of the world is evidently approaching, unquote. Now, I don't know about writing the book thing, but it sure is interesting. So does the Bible actually tell us how the world will end? It does not, but it, the more appropriate question is, does it give us prophecies that describe how the world will dramatically change? Absolutely. We're not piling on to the mountain of end-of-the-world predictions here. Instead, we are seeking to interpret world-changing events as prophesied in Scripture. And folks, because this is a podcast that is really going to be focusing in on prophecies, if you have your Bible available, go get that Bible and open it up. We're going to be working through Scriptures, and it's going to be so much easier to follow if you can follow along with your Scriptures. So that's where we're starting. In light of the present world events, as we witness Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine, we want to center our thinking on Psalm 46, which is a prophecy that can really look ominous. We will unfold it in small pieces. Verse 1 is actually very comforting. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Okay, so it starts out really nice. So let's go through just some, some basic observations about this first verse. So this Psalm 46 is from the perspective of what the faithful see. It views the troubles it reveals through the eyes of those who trust in God. And it's not saying those who trust in him won't have trouble, but that they will have help through trouble. And their help is going to come from God in the form of shelter, external strength, and his availability. So you've got the psalm beginning with great hope. So we get this sense of it's talking to those who are followers of God through Christ, and, and it's saying, okay, this is encouraging. Now, if we read the next verses with a literal mindset, they, 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 they sound terrifying, and they sound terminal. And so, Jonathan, let's go to Psalm 46, verses 2 and 3, and then read verse 6. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, Selah. The nations made an uproar, and the kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice, and the earth melted. It says we, again, meaning the faithful, we won't fear, but all this sounds a little scary. What happened to the comfort part? <laughs> yeah, I know. Let's go back to verse one and stay there for a yeah, while, right? I like Be- that one better. Well, and, and uh, of course, but you know, you understand that this is written and giving you the comfort to start, and then it's it's sort of like dropping the bomb, if you will. So how does this all fit together? This is, this is a, a prophecy of God. So there's a great sense to it, and we need to unfold that. So 
let's jump now to, we're just getting a sense of the psalm. Verse 10 of this psalm tells us plainly that all of the chaos that we just talked about, the earth and the, and the, and the mountain slipping into the sea and all of this stuff, all of this chaos is symbolic. Psalm 46, verse 10. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. I, I get it. Verse six, Jonathan, you read, it said the earth melted. Obviously that's symbolic or else how could God be exalted in the earth after it's all over? So this Psalm ends with verse 11 saying God's with us. So that's good. It's like Psalm 46 is a comfort sandwich yeah. <laughs> with hope on both ends. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of trouble in between. And that's the thing we have to understand that because that's the way God's plans work. There's hope on both ends, but there's always trouble in between. But this is good because you've got to see the whole picture. So what does all of this chaos actually mean? Let's put some of the symbolism Wait, in order. Go ahead. Rick, what, what gives us the authority to say that somehow this is a prophecy that affects our day? Well, okay, and, and that, that's an important question because we're looking at this and saying, okay, this prophecy unfolds right here, right now. Now, right. we're saying that because as we unfold the symbols, what we're going to see is uh, this is one of those things that's plain and simple and obvious. It's incredibly obvious that it fits today. So hang on that to that question, Julie. Let's go through some symbology of this psalm, and then let's get back to that answer. So there were three things that we wanted to define right up front. First, the earth. What about the earth? Well, the earth is solid. It's stable, especially in contrast with, let's say, the sea. So its symbolic meaning would likely be associated with some sort of stability. And I think of Psalm 66.4. All the earth will worship you and will sing praises to you. They will sing praises to your name. Okay, so you, the earth doesn't actually sing. So you get this idea that the earth gives us a sense of the social structure of humanity, the, the stable portion of mankind. So you've got the earth representing the people in a stable kind of environment. That's the earth, symbol. Symbol of the mountains. Remember in this psalm, the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. Julie, what about the mountains? Well, mountains are large. They are controlling structures that impose their presence on man. When you have a mountain in your way, it dictates where, you're, where and how you're going to live. You have to adjust for its presence. So how about reading Micah 4.1? And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and the peoples will stream to it. The amazing thing about the Bible is it's self-explanatory if we look far enough. The Micah scripture talks about the mountain of the house of law of the Lord being established as chief of the mountains. It's obviously showing us a governing system. So when we look at mountains in scriptures, we look at them as governments, both the governments of man and sometimes the government of God himself. So mountains are governments. Earth, the social structure of humanity, the stable portion of mankind. What about the sea? Well, I live near an ocean, and I can tell you the sea is large, it's unstable, and it's uncontrollable. And I think the symbolism on this one's easy because Isaiah 57, 20 eh, gives us a clue. It tells us what it means. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuse and mud. So you've got the tossing sea representing the wicked in, in Isaiah 57, 20, and the restlessness of the masses of mankind. So it's not just bad people, it's the restlessness. And you know, when you look at the restlessness of the sea and you see it as a picture of the restlessness of, of humanity, you say, wow, that fits pretty well because it's big and it can be awfully powerful when it's restless like this. So a brief overview of the chaos of Psalm 46, just two in, verses two and three for now. We're gonna expand a little bit later as we go. So this brief overview of the chaos of Psalm 46 has to do with the powerful and imposing power of the governments, the mountains, of humanity being shaken and pulled down by the restless and protesting masses of the people. So you've got the symbols working together, and now they're painting a picture. Reading Psalm 46, verse 2 again, with its symbols. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, though the present social order be entirely overthrown. And though the mountains, governments, slip into the heart of the sea, restless masses of mankind overwhelmed in anarchy. 
So you, you can see that when you start to put the symbols to it, you're saying, okay, there's a lot of events happening that have to deal with humanity, with not only the, the stable portions of the earth, but the governmental setup, as well as the masses of people that are restless about a lot of things. And when we look around right now, what do we see? Well, here in 2022, we see the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the fear and uncertainty that go along with it. This is the first large-scale military confirmation we have seen in decades, and this is the first war that the world can pretty much watch in real time. We're horrified by what we're seeing. Hospitals, maternity wards destroyed, bodies shot in the streets, landmines, attacks on rescue workers, families torn apart. I'm personally having a really hard time watching and reading the gruesome news. And one of our Christian Questions volunteers, John, is even closer to what's happening and wanted to share his experience. For those listening on the Christian Questions app, our friend John was responsible for creating it. And he helps us with other technical issues behind the scenes. So let's hear what he has to say. I was born in Moldova, a little country next to Ukraine. When I was seven years old, our country experienced the exact same events. The Soviet Union came apart and right after that, Russia invaded our country and claimed the territory of our country as theirs. I can feel for the children and people living in a country of war. We lived farther away from the battlefield line, but it's still fresh in my mind. As soldiers would come from the war and use their guns in our village, it's just not healthy as a child to witness such terror, fear, and people doing anything they can to survive. However, for the people in Ukraine, unfortunately, the worst is yet to come. It will take years to rebuild what was damaged in a few days. Still remember that after that war in Moldova, we lived many years with just a few hours of electricity per day, shortage of food produced. The stores would sell only in a limited quantity. The currency lost its value and in no time, people ended up with a lot of money in empty stores. We had only one option, to get used with what the Lord permitted for us to go through, to be content and thankful. And as I look back, I can see the Lord's hand in our family and in my life. For me personally, it helped me to have a baseline in my life, to be thankful for everything we have, because we are very blessed in this country, and we need to thank God for that. My heart is with all those that are affected in any way by this. I have been in Ukraine many times. My wife was born there and came to United States when she was eight years old. We have relatives, close friends, and brothers and sisters in Christ. We will hear of tragedies happening around the world and how people are so ready for a change and are praying for God's kingdom. I want to personally testify that I was never touched so much until now. When I pray, Thy kingdom come, I mean it like never before. Oh, what a testimony. You know, what he went through as a child affects him deeply decades later. And we're grateful that that brought him closer to God because that isn't always the way it turns out. And one of the things John said to us was, most of us thought that these kinds of events were behind us. However, this is just another proof that the world is not getting better without God's help. Here's a few statistics. According to the United Nations, 2 billion, with a B, 2 billion people or a quarter of the world's population now live in conflict-affected areas. This includes places like Yemen, Myanmar, Syria, Sudan, and Ukraine. That's one in every four humans who live in areas affected by violence. The next point, this is the highest number of violent conflicts since World War II, which ended in 1945. The UN Secretary General said in February this year that an estimated 84 million people were, quote, forcibly displaced because of conflict, violence, and human rights violations, end quote. And an estimated 274 million people will need humanitarian assistance due to conflict. We need help. So when you look at that, you hear John's testimony, you see what's happening in Ukraine, you hear those statistics, you think, wow, the world is really in, in a stage of unrest. It's in a stage of, of, of doubt. 
And that's what Psalm 46 is really telling us. So as we wrap up this first segment, just just laying some groundwork, the question, is God ending the world or is he changing the world? Bible prophecy can be overly scary, especially if we look at its elements literally when we should be seeing them symbolically. Two things to begin with. First, no Bible prophecy should be interpreted without referring to other prophecies to back it up. Second, most Bible prophecies unfold over a period of time. They're not instant chaos. And this is something that we're going to expand on as we go. We need to understand that Bible prophecies, our prophecies are looking to the future from the mind of God. See, Bible prophecy is a gift from God. We need to strive to use it as the tool of understanding that it was meant to be. So, have the governments of men already fallen into the sea, or is that happening now or in the future? Yes. (laughs) As we shall soon see, this particular prophecy is classic when it comes to its fulfillment taking time. Lots of time to happen. God has allowed evil to rule our world for thousands of years. When the time comes for that evil to crumble, it's only reasonable that its dissolving will not be a dramatic overnight event. And you know, this is something that's such an important aspect of understanding Bible prophecy. Human beings love to have the big drama, the big thing. God's prophecies and God's plan unfolding are a lot of little things over time that make big things, sometimes when we don't even notice. I recently spoke with John's Ukrainian wife, Julia, about what she's going through, and here she briefly talks about her experience. I moved out of Ukraine with my immediate family when I was only eight years old, but I have traveled back to visit extended family and friends many times, even with my husband and three young children. We have beautiful memories of our fellowship together and their hospitality. It's hard to believe, and it breaks my heart to see the devastation in the country. One of my very good friends is in Ukraine, and her husband and children are now split in three different countries. We have spoken over the phone many times in the past month, and she tells me she fears for her children more than for herself. We have cried together, but also shared our hope in God's promises for a better future. After watching the news, she turns to the Bible, God's Word, and trusts in His love, and she sees her children to do the same. You know, she talks about, and, and, and she doesn't say it casually, but it, it can be a casualty if we don't listen. Her, the, the, the husband, the wife, and the children are in three different countries, not three different cities, not on three different blocks, in three different countries. Let that sink in for a moment. That is one tiny little family tragedy of the millions that are happening in this. This is, this is a shocking thing for us to be looking at in our world today. And what we want to do as we go through prophecy today with this question about, you know, does the Bible tell us how the world will end, is see how all of these things fit into worldwide prophetic pictures that God gives us. So let's go and take a look at Psalm 46, verses 2 and 3. Now, we quoted them already, but now we're going to look at them in much more detail. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake as its swelling pride, Selah. Well, verse 2 seems to show us the conclusions of what happens in verse 3. The earth, the social structure of man, changes. The mountains, the governments of man fall into the heart of the sea, the sea being the restless masses of mankind. How do the governments fall into the heart of the sea? What does that mean? Well, and it's it's an interesting question because, you know, you're seeing a mountain falling into the heart of the sea, and you, and you think, can a mountain actually just fall into the middle of the ocean? Because that's what it literally looks like. But the symbolism is actually much bigger that, than that. Because we see the symbolism of the sea as clearly being the restlessness or the restless masses of mankind, let's look at the definition of heart with that in mind, because it says the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. Jonathan, what's that word heart mean? The heart, also used figuratively very widely for the feelings, the will, and even the intellect. 
So the governments will fall into the feelings and the intellect of the restless masses. So let's pause there for a second. So the governments fall into, how do governments fall into feelings and intellect? It doesn't make any sense. But when you think about it, what happens is governments, and we shall see as we look at history in, in in a moment, that governments usually have essentially a mind of their own. When you have the masses of people affecting the governments, then you've got the heart of the people and the intellect of the people having massive overriding effects on those governments, and you find those governments being massively influenced by those others. So it falls into the intellect and the heart of the people. So what we propose here is that history shows us the fulfillment of this prophecy is and has been happening at a lightning fast pace since 1914, the beginning of World War I. A lightning fast pace since the beginning of World War I. So that's 100 and, what, 108 years ago. Lightning fast? Hang on, stay with us. So let's take a quick look at history here for a few minutes. We might not realize just how unique a time the last hundred years or so have been. So for thousands of years, humanity's nations lived mostly under autocratic governments. What's an autocratic government? Autocracy is when unlimited and absolute power is concentrated in the hands of one person or an elite group of people. They hold all the political, the economic, social, military power, a dictatorship. That's a form of autocracy. So think about all the kings who have ruled in history, the emperors of Rome and Nazi Germany. So in modern times, North Korea is an example of an autocracy run by a dictator. Okay, so this kind of government, and there have been many of those governments that are massive in the past, this kind of government led to the colonization of countless other nations. A colony is a territory that's ruled by a foreign country. The United States, for example, was a colony of England until the year 1776. So at the beginning of the 1800s, approximately 85% of the world's population was under autocratic rule or they were colonized. Let's think of it as having little or no say in the direction of your country. Okay, so this this autocracy and colonization what happens is the average person has little or no say. They just are pawns that get moved around the board and they just have to move because it's time to move. Why? Because the governments, the higher-ups said, you have to move and no, you can't argue and no, you can't give us your, your opinion. You just have to move. Now, there are two other types of government that we want to define and put into place here. There's something called an anocracy and a democracy. Anocracy is a dictatorship with some democratic features. It's like a hybrid regime. There might be some freedom of competition as well as formal elections, but they aren't fair or free. And the choice of candidates is pretty much determined by those in power. Russia is considered currently to be an anocracy. Now, a democracy is where the people get to freely elect their governing representatives. Opposition parties are allowed. That's key. And there's an independent judicial system. And think of this as having clear representation and voice in the direction of your country. So at the beginning of the 1800s, anocracies and democracies accounted for only 5% of the world's population. Okay, so we've got these four different kinds of governments. Why are we going through history here and, and looking at this? Because for thousands of years, autocracies and colonization covered 85% of all of the world. And at the beginning of 1800, like Julie, like you said, about 5% of governments in the world were anocracies or democracies. So you have a dramatic, dramatic focus on pushing people around and not giving them a choice. Now, the other 10% that we didn't mention were just simply not definable in terms of countries either being in transition or just no, not enough records to understand what was happening there. So this gives us a picture, a historical picture of governments. Why are we going down this direction? Because the mountains represent governments. So hang on and watch how this begins to unfold. Let's now look at verse 3. Psalm 46, verse 3. Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, Selah, the waters, the restless masses of mankind. Roar means 
to be in great commotion, turmoil, and rage, and shake the mountains with their swelling pride, with their arrogance or majesty. So in Psalm 46.3, the waters are roaring and foaming, and the mountains are quaking. Imagine the mountains shaking because of the waters in their roaring and foaming and restlessness. So what this is symbolizing is people clamoring for their rights. And you know, that's a powerful thing, and it's a positive thing. The problem is, when everything becomes a right, it becomes wrong. And we get off track when we go too far with things, and that is the nature of humanity. The thing that jumps out at me is the governments of this present evil world swell with pride, pride being their downfall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so you've got the governments, you've got the sea, and, and you've got these are two opposing forces. The commotion that began with World War I only intensified over time. After World War II, we find a rapid decline and essentially a disappearance of colonization. Not complete, but almost complete. And a rapid increase in democracy. The roaring of the arrogance of the people is being heard. Now think about this. The colonization of the world, there was like 35 or 40% of the world that was colonized for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years and after World War II, it began to be eliminated. Most of us don't even realize that because we're too young to understand what was there beforehand. In this week's CQ Rewind show notes at ChristianQuestions.com and the Christian Questions app, we are including an important chart from OurWorldInData.org that shows how the world's governments have changed over time. For thousands of years, mankind was under the thumb of the individual rulers of autocracies. And as recently as 200 years ago, nearly everyone lacked democratic rights. Now, billions of people have them. The world is nearly 50% democratic starting at the end of World War II and then increasing again after World War, sorry, after World War I and then increasing again after World War II. Think about it. How many kings rule countries today? Hmm. The Bible prophesied how the restless seas would mix together with the mountains and actually change how the majority of mankind is governed. So the mountains of government rule have been pulled down. This psalm predicted the world changing, and it helps us know, at least in general terms, where we are on the stream of prophetic time. And the amazing thing is the average person has no idea about this because we were born in the times of democracy and, and people having a voice. It just wasn't that way for the previous history of mankind. Psalm 46 wakes us up to this. Now, let's add another prophecy to enhance the picture. Let's look at another prophecy in Psalm chapter 2. So this is Psalm chapter 2. This echoes the same unrest of Psalm 46, and this time we're going to see it as being presented from God's perspective. So Psalm 46 is from the perspective of those who are followers of God through Christ. That's the perspective that you're looking at. That's why you get the comfort. Psalm chapter 2 is from God's perspective looking down at the human condition. Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. So this prophecy adds the dimension of the people and the rulers. So you've got the two different groups mentioned in this prophecy standing against God himself. In their clamor for power, those in power want to keep the power, want bigger power. Those who don't have power want to rise up and get it. In their clamor for power on both sides, they all seek to be loosed from what they perceive to be the restraints of righteousness that is based on godly principles. It's all about my power as a government or my rights as an individual. God is left out of the equation. How different the world would be if everyone just simply loved their neighbor as themselves. Selfishness justifies these heinous acts that we see against fellow humans. So when we look at the things that, that are happening in the world around us today, folks, look at them through now through the eyes of some prophecy and say, wow, this is telling us, this is describing 
the world that we're living in. So we've got two prophecies now that we're going to work with side by side to unfold the furtherance of God's view into these things that are happening right now that have been happening and will continue to happen. So, Jonathan, is God ending the world or changing the world? As we unfold an understanding of Psalm 46, we realize that we have been living in a time of fulfilled prophecy for generations. World history gives us unmistakable proof that the world has changed and continues to change. To realize and act upon what we are shown is to proclaim and put our faith in the forefront of our daily lives. Proclaim and put our faith in the forefront of our daily lives. This is why we go through these Psalms and try to understand the prophecy, because it's about how am I going to live as a result? You know, it is far easier to see prophecy unfold than it is to act upon its unfolding. What are we supposed to do now? How are we supposed to react to these massive, earth-changing upheavals? Should they make us happy? Well, to be outwardly happy may be hard, especially, especially if these upheavals are causing pain and suffering to you and, and to those around you and to the people you know and the people you hear about. However, rejoicing in these things, now that's, that's a very different story. To rejoice is to courageously accept that the Father's will is being done, even if it seems so costly at this present moment. This is exactly what Julia and her friend in Ukraine are trying to do. Yeah, and, and you give them credit for having that attitude in the midst of such, such traumatic events. want to add just a few lines from another prophecy just to enhance this idea of the difficulty that we're looking at. The prophet Daniel adds clarity to the depth of the difficulty in uh, Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who was found written in the book, will be rescued. So you have this prophecy talking about a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. You've got a sense that this is big. This is something that will be marked in all of human history. And folks, we are seeing this beginning to really, truly unfold. Those statistics you guys talked about earlier really help us see that, wow, the world is changing. And again, we don't even know it often. God, here's the thing. God uses the evil of man to expose all of the horrors that godless lives are capable of producing. So he uses humanity's evil to expose it and say, this is what it's really made of. This is important as we unfold the prophecy. Let's go back to John, who gives us what I thought was a stunning comparison. The tactic of Russia is to trap, surround the city, cut it off from heat, electricity, food, and water, and then finally let people go. Where? They open an escape corridor that leads directly to Russia. What cruel and premeditated actions to lead people to a location against their will. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He surrounded and captured the entire world in sin, then opens what appears to be light, but it leads to his kingdom only. This keeps mankind in perpetual darkness. What an analogy. It's, it, it, it's stunning. And, you know, and John speaks from experience. He was there when he was a kid in Moldova. And, and you, you see, history does repeat itself. And sometimes it repeats itself and it gets a lot worse because technology gets bigger and then what we use it for gets worse. So thank you, John, for putting things in perspective from a personal, personal perspective. Let's get back to Psalm 46. We were looking at Psalm 2, and now we're going we're gonna to keep going back and forth between them. In Psalm 46, after showing all of that chaos, the psalm calms us as it recognizes our position of vulnerability within the tumult with a powerful promise of protection. So you've got the chaos and all of the things falling apart, and then all of a sudden the psalm completely 
changes its tone. Psalm 46, Jonathan, let's go to verses 4 and 5. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. This city of God represents those who are called to serve God in the footsteps of Jesus. This phrase is used again in Isaiah 60, 14. So let's follow those breadcrumbs. The sons of those who afflicted you will come bowing to you, and all those who despise you will bow themselves at the soles of your feet, and they will call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. So when you look at the Psalm 46 verses about this river, the making glad the city of God, and then the Isaiah 60, 14, telling us that the city of God is the people of God, this prophecy in Psalm 46 is actually telling us that those faithful to God are cared for. They're given permission and the process that they need to be able to cope with things that are so very difficult. There's, there's four key points here. Well, they're given a river, and that's another symbol. They're given the flowing waters of truth and salvation. And they are reminded that they are the holy dwelling place of God by way of his spirit. They have an attitude of courage, confidence, and full reliance on God. They are assured of their ability to stand firm through all tribulation. And they will be helped, delivered, when the new morning dawns. So you have a picture of very straightforward, clear, unmistakable calm and the deliverance in the midst of all of this storm. Folks, if you're a Christian and you, you, you say, yes, I am a true follower in the footsteps of Jesus, when you look at the world around you, Psalm 46 is telling us of how bad it is in the world, and it's telling us how good it is if you have faith in God through Christ how you can manage these things and move forward. So the city of the Lord is a description of Jesus's faithful church in heaven called the heavenly Jerusalem in Hebrews 12, 22. Quick quote, it says, but you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to myriads of angels. So it's comfort in the middle of turmoil. And that's such a key factor here, comfort in the midst of great turmoil. So let's take a look a little bit further now, Psalm 46. And again, remember, this psalm is written from the standpoint of those who believe, those who are followers of God through Christ. Psalm 46, verses 6 and 7. The nations made an uproar, meaning they roar and are boisterous. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice and the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold, Selah. Again, we know the earth melting is symbolic because we already jumped to the end of the psalm. We saw that God ends up being exalted in the earth, so it can't be burned up or melted away. But we said earlier that the earth represented stable, organized society. So what does the earth melting mean? Well, if it represents stable, organized society, when you melt something that already has a form, what have you done? You've taken that form and you've take, made it liquid, essentially, so it can be reformed. Hang on to that thought. We're going to come back to it in some much more detail. So what do we have in Psalm 46, verses 6 and 7? Uproar, tottering kingdoms, and a melting earth. Again, a melting social structure of mankind. And yet we have a stronghold from the verses before, if you, you have faith. In the last hundred plus years, have we not seen how fragile and unstable all of the kingdoms of this world are? Uh, haven't we seen how fragile the governments are and how they're, they're taken down and replaced and then taken down and replaced. And, and the world has changed before our eyes, even though we didn't even know what was happening. A powerful result of all this turmoil is that when something melts, it becomes pliable. It can be shaped into something entirely different. So if you have the stable structure and, and, and of society and humankind, you say, well, what does that mean? It means God will take the very best of what there is, and completely overhaul it, completely change it. He takes humanity, and he takes the need for society, but he will redefine them entirely and clearly in his own way. That's what the earth melting really is. So while we are assured and cared for, Psalm chapter 2 shows us what that melting brings. And as we go to Psalm chapter 2, verse 4, remember this psalm is from God's position looking down on the experiences of humanity. 
He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And in context, the nations are resisting God's rule, and no wonder he's laughing at them. It's not because he doesn't have compassion, but he's confidently laughing at the futility of the efforts of these rulers trying to maintain their power. He is. And see, he knows humanity's great cries for freedom and liberty will always, always get twisted and confused and end up being great actions of selfishness, power, and ego. So when you look at God laughing, you don't look at it like, oh, that's cruel. Look, as, as a father, I raised three children, and I knew that when my children were growing up and they would stand for whatever it was they stood for and they were determined, you, you could see them heading right into a ditch. And there were many times where we said, okay, let's let them go into that ditch. That one's not too bad. And you'd kind of laugh and say, <laughs> I just want to see this one unfold because you want to teach them. So it's not, it's not an angry or, or, or diabolical laughter. It's laughter saying, I know. I know what you're trying to do, and you're just a kid. Let me help you. God sees us that way. So let, let's continue here. You know, God knows uh, these, 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 these things always get confused. Let's take a look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Jonathan, I know these are some of your very favorite verses in the Bible. Oh, yeah, right. Uh-huh. <laughs> sure. Go ahead, because these verses describe the confusion of humanity. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. That is an amazing list. Every time I read that list, I I marvel at how the apostle could just put all those things down and just keep going and going and going. Amidst all of this degraded behavior, God does exercise his anger because it is not making him happy, obviously, though his anger is not exercised without strong hope attached to it. Remember, we saw that hope in Psalm 46. That was from the perspective of those who follow God through Christ. Psalm chapter 2 shows us that hope as well, and this is from God's perspective. This is God showing us how God is speaking. Psalm 2, 5 and 6. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Well, this is why he laughed at their futility, because he's in the process of setting up Jesus as the king, and God's righteous government is going to replace these selfish governments of the world. Well, bottom line, Jesus will take care of this sinful world and reshape it. This government of Jesus is permanent and untouchable. It's higher than all the mountains. This is the government that was meant to be from the beginning. So you can see that when the mountains are falling into the midst of the sea, there's a reason for it, because they need to be replaced with something bigger, something better, something stronger, something eternal. So you see the the chaos and say, well, wait, but there is something good here. There's something strong. Look, this is a mixed bag because we keep talking about how horrible this is and, and, and the, the, the leveling out and, and you know, the, the, the experiences in Ukraine and all of this thing. When you have a mixed bag of experiences where you're throwing out hope and you're throwing out fear and chaos, we need to set ourselves into a mindset of being ever willing to keep taking forward steps. And sometimes this is not easy. Let's look to the Apostle Paul for some inspiration on this. Philippians 4, 11 to 13. Not that I speak from want, For I have learned to be content in whatsoever circumstance I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So you have that motivation. The Apostle Paul went through hard, hard things, and yet he says, I can do deal with all of these things through Christ. And folks, that is how, why we look at Psalm 46 and cling to it, because it's our perspective on the chaos of the world. Now, there's further good news. The very clear leveling out, mountains falling into the sea, the leveling out, leveling out of humanity's power and rage described in Psalm 46 is a painful and necessary step. It's a precursor 
to God's grand kingdom. There's a lot of other corroborating prophecies. One is found in Isaiah 43 to 5, and it's good news because it talks about, again, the leveling of mountains and the glory of God revealed for the benefit of all who have ever lived. So as difficult as current events are to watch, and they are, and our heart goes out to all those who suffer, we are assured of a glorious future, both in heaven for those who follow Jesus now and an opportunity on earth for everyone else. So several prophecies corroborate the fact that the trouble is massive, but the hope is far bigger, and the trouble is terminal. The trouble is short, and the hope is eternal. So Jonathan, again, is God ending the world, or is he changing the world? The further we go with our understanding of this Psalm 46 prophecy unfolding before our eyes, the more devotion and discipline we could build as disciples of Christ. God's plan marches forward, and we need to march forward as well. We want to stay in lockstep with God's plan. We don't want to fall behind. We don't want to run ahead of it. We want to stay in lockstep, and we need to do that by following scriptural admonition, advice, and prophecy. So here's a bottom line to think about. With all of these prophecies available, God absolutely has everything in hand. So, what is the bottom line and end result? How does God build harmony out of such horror? We, begin, we began this journey through Psalm 46 prophecy, saying that God's plan takes time. Having seen this one prophecy span over a hundred years and counting, helps us to see things from His spiritual perspective. The changes God brings will be permanent but they can only be brought when humanity has become desperate because human nature doesn't respond fully and completely until desperation has actually set in. And so when we look at that, we know that it's going to get even worse. There's no question. But the question is, what about me? How am I going to respond to all of this? Jonathan, let's go to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11. And this is from the Good News Translation. Since all these things will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people should you be? Your lives should be holy and dedicated to God. In other words, knowing what we know, how should we be acting? And this is an important question that I ask myself a lot. We're given the blessing of some of this foreknowledge, knowing to expect that things are going to get worse before they get better, but that God is always in control. And to quote a recent sermon I heard on this topic, God has guardrails around the human experience. That's very comforting to me. So let's go to John one last time and hear how he answers the question, knowing all of this, what kind of people should you be? As followers of Christ, we are not to be attached to the things of this world. As we see people leaving Ukraine with just a few suitcases, we should ask ourselves, what is our treasure? Are we ready to leave everything behind and walk with a suitcase and have peace in our hearts knowing that the real treasure is in heaven? That's a very probing wow. question. And it's something that each of us really should take some time and think about and take some time and meditate on. And, and what, is, what are the most important things to me? If everything else falters and falls, what is it that I want to hold on to? Is it the promises of God? Is it following in Jesus' footsteps so that we can be a part of that heavenly calling in the reconciliation of the world of mankind? We have an eternal mission before us. How important is it in my everyday Christian walk? Let's go back to Psalm 46, now to its conclusion. So, Jonathan, we're going to go to Psalm 46, verses 8 through 11, but I'm going to interrupt you a lot. Surprise! <laughs> Verse 8, come, behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. Now, you read that, oh, he's wrought desolations in the earth. To some, this sounds like God has been j just gone on some uncontrolled tirade, and you think, oh, why would he wrought, wreak desolations in the earth? Hang on and read on. Verse 9, he makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. So he destroys the implements of our clamor. God levels things to put them where they need to be. 
you know, and that's such a that's such a comfort. So the desolation is destroying the elements of destruction. So now we can begin to see the reason for the anger that God has towards sin. And the thing to remember, folks, no matter how hard it is in whatever your circumstance and whatever you're seeing, whatever is getting to you and discouraging you and, and maybe making you feel hopeless is God always, always has a plan. He's had it from the very beginning. And remember, this prophecy that is so accurately describing our day was given thousands of years, thousands of years ago when it didn't look possible that the governments could fall into the sea, that, it, that the governments could fall into the hands of the average person. It was impossible for that to happen when the prophecy was written. But it's all over the world right now. So, Jonathan, let's go to verses 10 and 11. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold, Selah. The Psalm 46 message is clear. We now live in the time when the ways of humanity governs itself have made the most radical shifts in all of human history. And again, we need to stress that that has happened in the last hundred years or so, and most of us don't give it any recognition because we don't know anything different than what we have seen. But the world is different, and it exactly fits the way this psalm describes it. These changes are both good and bad. They're good because the rights of individuals have come to light, and they're bad because we have utterly distorted those rights into representing our prideful preferences and desires. God watches the destructiveness of humanity only for so long, and then he destroys our destructiveness. He will bring an end to evil. I love that, that he destroys our destructiveness. Jonathan, you read, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The new earth or new order and arrangement of society will exalt God and his law as over all and controlling all. So the message of Psalm 46 is that the Lord is with us. He has a permanent plan for mankind, and here is where we find our comfort. To help teach your kids that God has a plan, see our two-minute animated CQ Kids video called Why Does God Let Bad Things Happen? Find it on our YouTube channel at christianquestions.com slash YouTube. And folks, I just want to take a moment on that because, you know, we can take it for granted. Help teach your kids. You, do you realize how important it is to teach your kids that God does have a plan? Because as the world falls further and further away from godliness and into chaos and anarchy, if they can have it instilled in them from a young age that God knew this ahead of time and he will take care of this and it works out in eternity— you can give them hope to be able to manage through these things. And Psalms 2 confirms God's permanent plan for all. Psalms 2, 7 through 12. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Now, now, you think about this. Again, Psalm 2 is God's perspective. So God is speaking. I will tell you the decree of the Lord. You are my son. Who's that? Jesus. Today I have begotten you. I will give you the nations for your inheritance. God is plainly telling Jesus that the nations of the world are his. He is inheriting them because of his faithfulness. He bought them with his blood. You know how powerful that is? Because the nations... Are, are the things that are falling apart, and Jesus is the one that gets to put it back together in God's way, not the old way, in God's way. All right, Jonathan, verses 9 through 12. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he will not become angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So let's think about this. This is Psalm 2 from God's perspective, talking about the changeover. And in Psalm 2, the few verses before it said that, you know, God has put Jesus in place already while this tumult is happening. So he's got Jesus in place, and he tells Jesus, break them with a rod of iron. 
So Jesus, what he does is he takes the tumult that the restless masses cause as they, the governments change, and he capitalizes on it to take it so these things will never exist again because it is wrong for them to exist. We are God's creation, and we are out of harmony with God. God is showing us how history will yet unfold, and it is dramatic, and it's exciting. Jonathan, let's go to Psalm 76, a whole different psalm now, verses 8 through 10. You caused judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still. When God arose to judgment to save all the humble of the earth, Selah, for the wrath of man shall praise you. With a remnant of wrath, you will gird yourself. What an amazing end result. Humanity's wrath ends up bringing praise to God. All the anger, chaos, and rebellion end up praising God because he brings it into submission to his perfect will. So you think about what's going to be the type of government that we have in the kingdom. The everlasting government will be a benevolent spiritual autocrat. And this isn't a human installed government. It's a spiritually installed government. And God, through his son, Jesus, and his bride, the faithful faithful followers of him, will have absolute control, but for the eternal good and benefit of all. And it's for the eternal good and benefit of all because it comes from a mind that's higher than the mind of men. Folks, look around you because all that we see, all of the chaos, all of our cleverness is all a result of the mind of men. And honestly and truly, look at the whole picture and the end result. How are we doing? Not so well. Because we get stuck in pride, we get stuck in ego, and we become those restless masses, and we want, we want, we want, we want, and it's me, 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 my, I'm God, you're not. I, just it's, it's a horrible misrepresentation. And what these Psalms are telling us is it's all going to be reformatted. One last prophecy. Okay, we've been doing a lot of prophecies. One more to put this journey through Psalm 46 and Psalm 2 into a broader perspective. And this is the happy ending. This is what these prophecies are driving us toward. This is Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 4. Jonathan, let's just do verse 2 to start with. And these are the type of scriptures that are my favorite scriptures, Rick, not okay. the other. All right. Okay. All right. You got okay. that? I got All it now. Okay. Now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. All right, now pause there. Remember the mountains fall into the sea and it's catastrophic and it's chaotic? Well, now this mountain of the house of the Lord will be chief. It will be over everything. So now everything is under this governing body. And Julie, you talked about it being Jesus and his true followers. Verse three. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So you have this mountain that the people are going to say, let's go there. And we see Jerusalem as a literal positioning of the centrality of world government by Jesus through Israel. It's just an amazing picture, and the people are going to stream to it. Notice they're not restless. Notice there's no shaking. There's no earthquakes. There's, there's, no, there's no mishaps happening. They're streaming to it because it's attractive. And here's what it brings, verse 4 of Isaiah chapter 2. And he will judge between the nations and will ren render decision for many people. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. So we see the end result is peace and harmony on earth. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. That gives us a sense of what God's kingdom through Christ brings us. That's what those Psalms, talking about all that chaos, end up with if we see our way through the chaos. One last time, Jonathan, is God ending the world or is he changing the world? God's word is the ultimate source of good news. No matter the circumstances of your life or the war and unrest in the world, God's plan will put in it all in perspective. Knowing this, what kind of person will I be from this day forward? Will I reflect the light of hope from above or will I absorb and reflect humanity's broken 
and in inadequate solutions. So, Rick, does yes. the Bible tell us how the world will end? Okay. Does the Bible tell us how the world will end? Well, you know what? This is not the end of the world. The Bible is showing us the end of the present order of things. That's what ends. The world, the, the, the human race, and the, 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 the natural environment will be restored to something greater and magnificent. It's not the end of the world, but it's the end of the way we have messed up the world. And by God's grace, it will be God's will, God's way, God's time, God's preferences, God's justice, God's love, God's wisdom. Get the picture? This is something magnificent, and that's what these Psalms are teaching us. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is done in heaven. Think about it. Folks, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode or other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our podcast is subscribing to Christian Questions in your favorite podcast channel, such as Apple Podcasts or Spotify, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts. Wherever you get your podcasts, please rate us and review us. We greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, why should Christians care about Israel's deliverance from slavery? Such a long time ago, such ancient history. Why should Christians care? Oh, wait for the answer. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>